you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, starting a new series today. I call it The Long Game. Um, I think too many of us, we believe that God had something for us, but it didn't happen the way we wanted it to and the time we wanted it to and how we wanted it to. And so because of that, we either believe that, well, he never really meant it, or it was just my imagination, or it wasn't really from God, it was just from me. And I think that because of that, it shakes our faith. And it may not mean we walk away from the church, but it may cause us to doubt the reality of what he's been telling us all along. So, some of you know my story, and if we want to go back to where I first fell apart back in 2006, Tracy and I lost a baby. And what happened was, I never made this conscious decision, but what happened was, somewhere in there, in that process, I still knew that God loved people, I just didn't know if he was really going to come through for them. So then, I have to not only talk about Jesus, but I have to become Jesus. And so, when you try to become Jesus, I'm telling you right now, your life gets messy. Because you try becoming not just like Jesus, but you try to become Jesus. You try to meet people's needs, no matter what their needs are. You're going to do it. You take on a God complex, which then eventually destroys you. And so there were these things that I believed had been promised to us that weren't coming through. And so then I began to wonder, God, are you really there? I mean, I don't doubt your existence, but I doubt you're really doing what you said you were going to do. And I'm living this place of complete brokenness. But on the outside, I still looked pretty good. I was a little bit thinner, had a little more hair. I could still pull it off. Some people say, you used to preach with so much more passion. And I go, yeah, I just preach with a whole lot more just realness now. I know it's not nearly as polished. But it's much more real and genuine. And it's not the people that preach with passion or follow an outline are not real and genuine. That's not what I'm implying. But for me, it was part of what I did. It was part of my persona that I put up, part of the walls, part of the veneer that showed this is who I let the world see, but it's not really who I am. So from the point at which David becomes king, he really believes it's time to have a temple. And as he wants this temple... He wants it so desperately bad that he, he has this plan and this passion and he's like, it's not right that I live in a palace but we still don't have a temple that we can worship in. So he's got absolutely the right heart. And um, in 1 Chronicles 21, 29, which is actually even before our text, I'm just going to read that to you real quick. It says, For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering which Moses had made in the wilderness were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. Okay, so we don't know the journey that it went from Moses to David, but what we know is that's a lot of carrying and years and years and years have passed and they're hauling this thing around because they know that someday they're going to have a place to put it. And if you're wondering, the altar, it would have been in pieces, but it would have been probably, rough estimate, about 12 feet wide, about 12 feet deep, kind of a 12-foot square, and it had all kinds of ornate decoration on it. It had uh, a slab where they could burn the offering. 
And it had to be that big because they had to get the fire hot enough that if you're going to burn an entire ram, you've got to have some serious fire. And so if we're then going to put the next thing on, it's got to be deep. And so if you're wondering, why did they make it so big? There's reasons behind it. And so they've been carrying this around, and it's sitting in Gibeon, just waiting until they have something. And then we're going to pick up our text right here at 1 Chronicles 22. It says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints, bronze in abundance beyond measure, cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much more cedar wood to David. Now David said, Solomon, my son is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all the countries. I will now make a preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, you have made great wars, you shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. And behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall, a man, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give him peace and quietness in Israel in his days. Just if you want to put your finger there or make a mark, I'm going to come back in just a minute. Okay, so let me catch you up on what the text says. David has this vision to build this temple. It's going to be the most glorious temple in all of the known world. It's going to be the biggest. It's going to be the best. And he's been gathering for years. Here's the beauty. This is why I call this series The Long Game. They gather materials for over 20 years. 20 years they spend in order to get enough. It's not that, oh, they just took their time gathering stuff. They're gathering as much as they can, as quickly as they can, and they're doing this for 20 years. They're going well outside their known kingdom to gather more wood, to gather enough iron for the nails, enough brass for the ornamentation. Because in his mind, this is going to be the most beautiful temple ever created. Because he believes that his God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who we still worship to this day, deserves something that magnificent. And so he's spending the last years of his life as well as many years of his son's life, just gathering stuff. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. But here's a few other things the text tells us. David sees the need for a temple, and he goes out and does it. How often do we see the need for something to be happening, but we just think, well, somebody else should do that? I, I, early on, people would say, hey, we should have this ministry. And it, it stopped quick, because as soon as they'd say that, I'd go, that's great. You should go do that. You should start that. Give me a plan and then gather a group of people and then let me know how I can talk about it up front because that will be my participation in it. <laughs> I've been asked, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't we as a church? And I'm always like, hey, it's a free market society and I'm a free market guy. If you can get the people together to do it, 
I would love that. But at the same time, I have passions and visions and dreams and ministries of my own that I'm pushing, that I promote, that I get behind, that I do. It's not that one is better than another. It's that God gives different people visions. Saul was the king before David. He never even attempts to build the temple. It's been a long time since they've been out of Egypt. Hundreds of years. And finally, they're getting to a place where they see the need for something, but somebody just doesn't go, yeah, somebody ought to do that. Somebody goes, I'm going to do this. When we see the need, what is our response? I think, if anything, this shows us that David didn't just see. He dove after, he grabs it, and he goes with it. David gathers the best of all people. I love the part where it talks about he goes and he finds those, the aliens that are living amongst them. Because what he wants is not just somebody to do the job. He wants the best people to do the job. He goes and he recruits the absolutely best people. Too often times, we think, well, I don't have the skills, or I don't have the this, or I don't have the time. Are we willing to go and find the best people? And if you don't have the best, you know what you do? You train, you equip, and you release. You know why the best stonemasons in the world were the best stonemasons? Because they went out and carved stone. They didn't get born one day, and then they go, oh, stonemason, and send them off to masonry school. They trained and they learned. I love, uh, I love sports. Some of you know that. I'm a baseball fan. I have a friend who is right now, he's pitching in the A's organization, and he just continues to move up, and he's actually in their fall ball league right now. There's a, there were 22 major league scouts watching him. About a, it was just over a week ago. 22 major league scouts signed in to watch him. And he's already with a major league team. These are scouts that are like, hey, what could we trade to get this kid? And I knew him when he was probably nine years old, eight years old was when I first knew him. And he used to bring baseball mitts to church. And he would catch me because I was willing to. And he'd go, I got my mitts. And I'd go out five minutes before service, 10 minutes after service, and we'd just throw the ball in the parking lot, throw the ball out on the grass. Everybody else would be meeting and greeting, and I'd be, Sam, i got to go talk to some other people now. Well, just three more throws. <laughs> All right, three more throws. And we would throw the ball. I took him to opening day of the Padres when he was 12 or 13 years old. And he knew every, like every player, and he knew their stat line. He's so obsessed, he would memorize hat sizes. And he talks about his most embarrassing moment is they saw Trevor Hoffman leaving the stadium, and people were trying to stop him. And he's walking out, and they're talking. And some guy said, hey, I think I have your hat from your minor league days. And he goes, oh, I don't know. Let me see it. And Sam says, is it six and seven eighths? That's his hat size. And Trevor just looks at him and he goes, that's weird, kid. <laughs> he goes, at the time I didn't think it was weird. Now I look back and go, oh man, that is weird. <laughs> but you know what? He didn't wake up as a 22-year-old college kid and go, I think I'm going to start pitching today. At eight years old, he's out on the church lawn for four minutes getting in three more throws because he dedicated his life to it. People want the best of the best and they look for people who have dedicated their life to it. Are we willing to do that for God? Are we willing to dedicate everything we have 
to him so that we're available when the opportunity comes along. And that's going to look different for you and me because you have different skill sets. You have different strengths. I'm told all the time, one of two things, this is what people think. They either think, you got the easiest job in the world. Or they think, I could never do that. And I go, it's not the easiest job in the world, but anybody could do it. You just get up and you just get used to talking in front of people. I've talked in front of groups of 5,000 people and I've talked in front of groups of three. It's the same thing. You just make the three-person group a little bit shorter message because there's not quite as much interaction. But it's the same thing. And the truth is, I work on this and I hone this not because, oh, I've got to look sharp, but because I've got to do the best I can for who he is. David's looking for the best available people to do the work of God. Third thing the text tells us, David prepares materials for a project he knows he's never going to complete. Are you willing to give in to something that's greater than you, that lasts longer than you? When we were doing our little playground project and I really wanted to build this playground, I would talk to the adults and say, listen, more than likely, you will never go down that slide. I have, but I was here, you know, right after it got put up. Most of you have probably never walked on that playground. It took us three years to raise the funds to build that. But we didn't build it for me as much as I enjoy it. And we didn't even build it for you. We built it because we want kids to have a safe place where they can come and feel like they are part of what happens here. Because if they feel like they're part of what happens here now and it's a positive experience, then as they grow, as they age, and as they get older, they're going to know this isn't just my parents' church. This is my church. And I say all the time, they're not the church of tomorrow. They are our church now. They're just smaller. Doesn't make them lesser, just makes them less in size. And are you willing to invest in something that you may never see the payoff of? Right now I'm investing heavily in the future of mass transit in the Puget Sound region. And I realize it when I pay my tabs for my car and I go, this project's not going to be done until 2050. My children may not even be around to see this project done. That's an involuntary (laughs) donation. But the long game says, am I investing in things that are going to last beyond today? Am I investing in what's going to be tomorrow? Why are we actively looking for a children and youth pastor? I'm not a child. I'm not a youth. I won't even have a kid in youth group probably by the time we hire one. Why? Because I believe in training and equipping the next group and we want the absolute best person to fill that role. And if I want the best person to fill that role, it's not so that, oh, look, they're so sharp. It's, oh, look, they're impacting the community. My kids want to go to church. My kids want to go to youth group. Are you willing to invest in something that you may never see the results of? Solomon is the son of David by an adulterous affair. And God has a plan for every person. If you ever wondered, well, but does God have a plan for this person? You know, David has an affair, has a child, that child dies, has another child with the woman that he has an affair with after he has her husband murdered. Good guy, David, good guy. It's no wonder we call him the biblical leader. Too much blood on his hands, but he still sees the future. Another thing this text teaches us, because of, God, because of David's choices in life, war, bloodshed, murder, 
He cannot fulfill what was in his heart, but that does not mean he is not a part of it. He, he doesn't get to do everything he wanted to do. He doesn't get to complete everything that was in his heart. But he collects and he gathers and he uses wealth and influence to move this project forward, to move the people forward so that the people have a place to worship. So that the people can go and say, this is our God. So that people throughout the world would go, who is this God that they would build this temple to? It wasn't about image, but it was definitely about honor. It was definitely about reverence. There's been choices we've made in our life that may hold us back from everything we wanted to do. I made decisions that changed the course of where I would go. But it doesn't mean God couldn't use me because after the decisions I made that were, that were destructive, God brought me to another place. He continued to use me because I was willing to step out and be used. He'll continue to use you. It may not be to do what you originally had in your mind, but it may be something far greater than you could ever have imagined. Starting at verse 11. Now my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you, Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Even knowing he doesn't get to do it, he prays a blessing over his son, over the one who gets to do it. He looks at his son and doesn't say, you shouldn't have this right because I didn't. He looks and says, live long, have wisdom, and do this because I have something so great, or God has something so much greater in store. Sometimes we pray over our children, but our prayers are loaded because we want something in particular for them. And I love that this is a selfless prayer that says, give him wisdom. Let him follow you every day of his life. Yes, let him complete this project, but more importantly, give him what he's going to need to be a good and gracious ruler. And if you go on to read the rest of the chapter, 13 through 19, all of David's plans for the future, he prepares for future costs of the project. He begins to gather the gold and the silver that's in the kingdom. He begins to grab, uh, gather the bronze. And he doesn't take these by force. He takes them by selling what he has. He's the king. He could technically own everything in the kingdom. And talks about his fields and his sheep and his crops. And if you read it in, in the Samuel version... He talks about taking what he has and selling it to bring back the money to put into the temple. Not to put into a palace. Not to add one more golden goblet. Not to add one more servant. But he sells what he has to advance the cause. Are we willing to live self-sacrificially like that? Here's a few things that I think the text gets misconstrued. And that is one, that David is being punished. There is no punishment here for what he's done. It's a recognition of his sin and its natural consequences for his actions. It's not punishment. If I don't pay my taxes, there's a natural consequence for my actions. Okay? 
So if I choose not to support the future of mass transit in the Puget Sound region, there's going to be a cost. I don't get to drive anymore. He never shows resentment towards God, and he celebrates what's going to happen. Oftentimes, we're, we are resigned that we don't get to do what we do, but we resent God or we resent the people around us. David never does. He never shows even a slight hint of resentment. He celebrates, and he looks at his son and says, I'm praying for wisdom. Now I'm going to go get you the money you're going to need to make this happen. Never says that the temple will stand forever. I've heard many people talk about how once this temple was built, it's going to be there for all time. No. I know you can still go to um, the Western Wall in Israel and you'll see people pray outside it all day. It's the last, basically the last stones that are standing upon the temple. And I think Jesus sums up this best in John 2.19. He goes, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days... I'll build it again. And the people call it blasphemous because how could you do that to our temple? And Jesus says, there's something greater. David never says, it's going to stand for all time. What he says is, it's going to be a sign to the nations. But David knows all along that there's a Messiah that's going to come. That this temple is temporal. And we're going to make it great, and we're going to make it beautiful, and we're going to make it for generations. But there's going to be a time that it comes to an end, and that's something to celebrate. I've told you before, my goal is not to build the largest church. I'm not organized enough to do that, people. It takes so much organization. My goal is to build people who genuinely love one another and love their community. And they love their community so much that other people are compelled to come and find out, what are you guys about? I've told you, I don't change my, my message as I, I really only have a few messages but I, I feel okay with that because some of the greatest speakers in the world talked on the same topics over and over Billy Graham, Paul Jesus, they all hit the same things just kind of over and over we've got to be a people who love our community so much that people are compelled to come and find out what it is about us What we're building here won't last forever. It's temporal. But I want to put everything I have in this one short life into who Jesus is and see if he can't use me to do something that matters and makes a difference. Something that is impacting and lasting. Here's a couple of things I learned from this text. I don't normally do this. Normally this is the part where I ask you questions, but today I'm going to tell you a couple of things that I learned. Number one, greatness can take time. It's something I already knew, but I like to see it. That the greatness that he wants, it isn't overnight. And too many people want instant success, instant fame, instant wealth, instant whatever. That uh, in 1970, when people went and got, when they graduated college, they expected to go in at an entry level. That was the expectation. They said in 2010, College graduates expected to go in at 75% of the top salary that could be earned in their company. You start at 75%, where are you going to go, my friend? (laughs) There was this shift. 
At one time, we had this expectation that I'll start here, but they're going to see how much I work, how dedicated I am, and I'm going to move up. Now they want to go in at the same level as the guy who's worked there for 25 years. We, we as a society want instant gratification. I blame the microwave. I remember when we got our first one. <laughs> Found everything in the world I could that would blow up in it. <laughs> but we do. We want instant. But greatness takes time. It's like I alluded to before. Greatness is a third grade kid throwing just a few more balls after church or before service with the old guy that was willing to go out there and catch with him. That's what greatness is. And the reason I was willing to is not because I knew someday he was going to achieve great things in baseball, but because I thought someday this kid might be in my youth group. And I want him to have an undying love for me before he ever makes it there. Number two, lesson learned. Fulfilled promises may not happen overnight, but just because they haven't happened yet doesn't mean they're not going to happen. Just because they didn't happen the way I pictured them in my mind doesn't mean that God's promise to me isn't true. And just because I didn't see it even happen directly doesn't mean that God's not doing something below the surface. Too often times we say, well, I prayed for my brother to accept the Lord for 17 years and he never did. And God failed me because I believed. And I always like, how do you know what your brother did and didn't do? Because it tells us man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. God is the one who judges. It's our job to pray and be faithful. It's his job to bring in the fruit. And too often times we want to be the one with the greatest harvest. So we talk about our harvest and we show the pictures of our great garden on our social media, but rarely do we show the picture of us spreading manure on day one. And you know what? You've got to spread a lot of manure, and you've got to put seeds in the ground, and you've got to know not everything's going to happen. I've told this story before, but it's one of the most impacting things I've ever experienced in my life. I was 12 or 13 years old, and we went out to my grandpa's. We went in the house, and grandma was there, and we said, my dad said, where's dad? And she goes, He's out in the fields. We had farm fields back then, but he was no longer farming. He was leasing it. She didn't tell us what he was doing, so we walk out, and there he is, other side of the field. And we walk 20 acres across an open field to him, and he's down on his hands and knees. My dad said, what you doing, Dad? He said, planting trees. And he's got these little seedlings this big, and they're oaks. And oaks take years you're not going to see your first acorn, depending on the breed, if you've got good white oaks, pen oaks, you're not going to see your first acorns until 10 to 15 years. You're not going to see a real crop for 20 to 30 years. But I walk out there now, and I walk past those trees, and it's this almost spiritual moment as I'll walk by and sometimes literally lean into a tree that's 100 feet tall, 80 feet tall, and this big around and go, I was here the day you went in and you were that big. And you're going to outlive me unless someone cuts you down and you get struck by lightning. You're going to outlive me by another good hundred years. Because some people are thinking of the long game. Some people are thinking of the long game. My grandfather was a logger. He loved logging. He was so sad when the logging industry dried up 
back in Wisconsin. It was in the 50s, and he used to go all winter. When my dad was young, he'd go all winter and log and then come home and farm all summer. And that was his cycle of life. I think he felt like he owed it to the trees to give a few back. Thinking of the long game, people. We can't just think of the short game. Fulfilled promises are you take a seed, you take an acorn, you take something, you stick it in the ground, and knowing you may never see the first piece of fruit from it. When I put in trees, I go buy 10-year-old fruit trees and I over-fertilize them and I demand that they grow quickly and then I start getting my pears off my tree or my apples because I want to see my fruit now. But let's be people who plan for the long game. This year I was picking up horse chestnuts, also known as the Washington chestnut. I gathered five pounds of nuts. I made my wife go with me one day. Larry and Vicky even took me to some people's house that had a tree so I could try to get more. I'm going to put my nuts out and try to grow some trees that I will never see the harvest of. And even once you do, they're not fit for human consumption. They're only for animals. But I'm trying to think of the long game. What's going to last after I'm gone? I try to do that spiritually and I try to do that in my family to create that life-giving legacy. Third thing I learned was beyond our scope and possibly even beyond our lifetime, the things that last are the things that we put our time into. I carry life insurance so that someday my wife can be rich. It'll never benefit me. It's to offer help and support if I die to my children. I carry just enough to pay off the house and help a kid through college. I don't want her to think she's getting too rich. (laughs) But I do it not for me. I invest in that for the next generation. I invest in that so that my kids can become all that they hope and dream to be and that God has for them. So much of what we do and so much of what we have should be about pouring into those promises and seeing them fulfilled in that next generation. Some series that I do are designed to like inspire. Some that I do are designed to challenge. This series is all about remembering the promises, visions, and dreams that God has given in your life. And the things that maybe you've lost due to fear or busyness or pain or cynicism, time, distance, so many other things. Maybe you had visions and hopes for a family and you never saw that. And it may not be the traditional family that you once vision, had envisioned. Maybe something different. Maybe your spouse died or you got a divorce and things changed from what you dreamed. Maybe you believed that God had something specific for you and you can't see a way it could possibly happen. Maybe it's not going to happen the way you pictured it. But maybe, just maybe, God knows what he's doing and he has something far greater and far more beautiful than you could imagine. I've known people that prayed for their spouse for 50, 60 years to accept the Lord. And sometimes they saw it and sometimes they didn't. But God knows. And God saw the promise fulfilled. Next week, Solomon brings the ark to the temple which hasn't been there in his lifetime. 
and it's a cause for rejoicing. The ark being brought there is the sign that God's presence is coming into the temple. It's kind of their grand opening. We're going to talk a little bit about the grand opening and um, how once he's there, he doesn't stop the dream. He continues thinking of what's next for our kingdom. The fulfillment was the fulfillment of that thing, but it's not until I'm dead, until my last breath is taken, there's something more God wants to do in me and through me. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week. So I hope you can join us. God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for every one of us. And though we may not see the long game, though we may not see what you have, it doesn't make it any, mo- any less a reality. And it doesn't mean we're supposed to take it into our own hands. Be proactive, yes, but allow you to lead us even in that. Let us prepare for the future. Let us give to things that matter greater than ourselves. In your name, amen. Um, One thing before I go, um, actually two things. One, I hope you can join us for Transform Burien today. If you've never been there, it's a great time to go. If you've been there every time, we always need help. So 2.30 to 5 at Transform Burien, which is over on 4th. Come and serve some people. Second thing, we have several people in our church who have either recently had surgery or are in the hospital currently. Uh, Eileen Babula, Karina Wood, Franny Rogers, all of which... They could use a card, a note, a letter of encouragement, a phone call. Reach out to people. Um, Sometimes it's the only way they know they're not alone because it can be really lonely when you're sitting in a hospital room. And yes, I do call them or reach out to them, but something that comes from you, they still look and go, well, thank you, Pastor, for doing your job. (laughs) But when it comes from you, you, you have no obligation. You're doing it genuinely because you see a need. So be praying for them, but reach out to people this week. Thanks. See you next week.